Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Volts for April 4th, 2022. Volts podcast, Matthew Metz and Janelle London on gasoline super users and smarter EV subsidies. I'm your host, David Roberts. Over the last week or so, I've been doing a series of podcasts about clever ways to reduce oil and gas consumption, which these days seems like a pretty patriotic thing to do. The first two were about buildings, how to make them more efficient and get them off of natural gas. Today, we're talking about gasoline. Specifically, we're talking about the people who use the most gasoline and how we might get them into electric vehicles. Last year, a nonprofit called Cultura, devoted to reducing gasoline consumption, issued a report about gasoline super users, a relatively small percentage of drivers who use a disproportionate amount of gasoline. It also contained a proposal for how to revise U.S. EV subsidies to target super users, thus displacing the maximum amount of gasoline use. It's an intriguing proposal a new way to think about EV policy. So given the present geopolitical importance of reducing demand, I thought it'd be a good time to kick the tires. Pardon the pun. I am excited to talk to Matthew Metz and Janelle London, the co-executive directors of Cultura, about who these super users are, how we can best identify them, and what it would mean to scale EV subsidies in their direction. So uh, without further ado, Matthew Metz and Janelle London, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Let's just talk about gasoline for one second. <laughs> I feel like uh, in some ways it's an overlooked climate issue, and it's notably the use of gasoline in the U.S., uh, unlike use of fossil fuel electricity, is not declining despite technological gains, despite efficiency gains. So maybe let's start there. Why is U.S. gasoline use so persistently high? Matthew, you want to jump off there? Yeah, well, there's a number of reasons. There's more drivers on the road. They're driving longer distances and they're driving bigger vehicles. So we have been getting some gasoline savings from more efficient vehicles, but that's all been canceled out by more vehicles and, and driving further. And, uh, you know, we've been stuck using about 140 billion gallons a year of gasoline. In 2006, we're using 140 billion. Right now, it's roughly around the same. So we haven't made any progress. Hmm. And how much of our greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. are gasoline due to transportation? 18% come from uh, light-duty vehicles, gasoline, basically. And 29% of total U.S. emissions are from transportation. Got it. So gasoline is this... Um, Largely unsolved problem right now. So um, I know you guys have been researching it, researching specifically who is using gasoline, which I think is, is really fascinating to get into. But this being volts, uh, we're all kind of nerds around here. This is a little bit of a nerdy place to start. But I want to, before we jump into the sort of conclusions of your report, what you found, I want to talk about the data issues. I want to talk about the sort of data set that you drew on and sort of what's in there, what we can learn from it, and what sorts of things we could possibly learn with better data or what better data might someday be available. Let's just talk about the data issues before we jump into the, to the report. Okay, so we got our data from something called the National Household Travel Survey. Um, it's done by the Federal Highway Administration, and it, it had 130,000 respondents. So that's a pretty rich source of data. 
we were able to learn a lot of general information about gasoline use from this survey, kind of who's using it, how much, and where. Is it literally a, a survey that they send to people? You just sort of fill out and, and report your own gasoline use? Is that how that works? That's right. Yes. Hmm. And so, you know, you point out a great limitation. It's only as accurate as the survey takers' responses. So it's not measuring things. It's asking people's recollections of things. Correct. Yes. Um, I will say that the, the last one was in 2017. There's another one coming out, it looks like, this year. So we will get more, much more recent data coming, coming soon. And that asks, you know, how much have you driven? What do you do? Like, what's the range of kind of questions on there, the range of data that they end up drawing out? So there's really a broad range of data. It's basically everything you did on a certain day of the year. So a lot of it's focused on that as well. So did you take the bus that day? Did you carpool? Did you walk, bike? You know, so it really goes into pretty comprehensive detail. And it's really the, I guess, Rosetta Stone for the U.S. transportation system, how it actually works. Got it. So these are drawn from survey results. We'll talk a little bit later, maybe after we go through some of this, about how we can learn more and sort of what data sets we might bring in later to learn more. But let's get to the report because the conclusion is pretty striking. So Janelle, just tell us, I guess, what is a super user? What, is, what was the main finding of the report? What's a super user and how much gas do these super users account for? Sure. So um, we defined super user as somebody who is in the top 10% of gasoline consumption in the U.S., mm-hmm. And so those folks account for about 42 billion gallons of gas. Um, And what's interesting is, although by definition, they're the top 10% of gasoline consumers, they account for about 32% of all the gasoline. This is a familiar pattern, right? Where you get sort of the bulk of usage from a relatively concentrated number of users. Right. And if you take it one step further, the top 20% account for about half of all the gasoline. So you know, really these, this gasoline use is concentrated in these top tiers of use. Yeah, I have one interesting stat for you, David. So the super users in the United States consume as much gasoline as the entire countries of UK, France, Italy, and South Korea combined. <laughs> yes, I know. We, we not only have super users relative to other US users, but I think the US in general is kind of a super user of, of gasoline. So we have this kind of 10% that use strikingly more gasoline than like the lower 50 to 60% of the distribution. What do we know about those people? <laughs> what, who, who are they? Where are they? Uh, yeah. What do they do for a living? Like what, what's the extent of our knowledge about them currently? Well, when we look at the map in terms of where super users are concentrated, it looks kind of like a red and blue state map. So the red areas are, the southern part of the country, the, the Midwest, like Oklahoma and Texas are, are and Louisiana are right at the top of super users. That's where they're the most concentrated. And then along the coast, they're in the least concentration. And it so happens that's the opposite of the EV map, which where the EVs are really concentrated on the coast and the traditional blue areas and, and pretty sparse in red America. So we can locate them in states. How precisely can we locate them? Like, do we know what percentage of them are, for instance, rural versus urban or suburban? Yeah, we do. So about a third are rural and compared to about uh, 26% of other drivers. So they're, they're somewhat more likely to be rural, but really they're located everywhere. They're in small towns, the suburbs, 
in relatively similar proportions to other drivers. So, hmm. um, but they are the most concentrated, definitely in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. And do we know beyond where they are, um, who they are, like their income or, or profession or anything like that? I don't know what all is in the survey. I believe we looked at Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an income breakdown. They tended to be across, well, there were super users across all income levels, but I think they were more concentrated in the lower income levels. And then in terms of uh, what they drove, we found that they tended to drive, no big surprise, kind of the bigger vehicles like trucks and SUVs. I don't know, Matt, do you have anything to add? Yeah, that's that's correct. Although still a lot of car drivers. So yeah, they're weighted towards trucks and SUVs, but there's still, you, you know, um, many millions of car drivers as well. So it's it's fair to say they're slightly weighted rural, slightly weighted lower income, slightly weighted bigger trucks and SUVs, but only slightly. It's still distributed pretty pretty evenly. Yeah, that's true. And even going back to the geography, while it's true that there are more in red states, there's believe me, there's plenty in California. So and and in the blue states there's the millions. So Texas, the super users use about 35% of all gasoline. And in California, they use 25%. And do we know, I mean, at a very basic level, why these people are driving so much? <laughs> or, or, or can we only speculate about that? We, we have some pretty strong theories. Um, we, <laughs> we've actually been able to dig into s- uh, some much more granular data in California that we can maybe talk about later. But um, we figured out by kind of the type of vehicle that super users are driving and where they're located that they're usually either kind of super commuters who are having to commute extremely long distances to work mm. um, in less efficient vehicles, or they may be in like construction where they have to drive around to different construction sites, um, again, in bigger vehicles. Um, and so those tend to be, I think those were kind of the main two use cases that we identified, although I'm sure they're, you know, more along the edges, the edges that we're not entirely sure about. Yeah, but there's interesting regional variations there as well. So, for example, in, in the Palo Alto area with the kind of wealthy uh, enclaves, uh, you know, cars that are used to probably transport children around are, there's quite a few super users among them. That's the leading category. So the, um, yeah, the minivans and things like that. <laughs> a soc- soccer mom super users. Yeah, exactly. Let's pivot then to talk about EVs. Your basic proposal here is that we should be targeting EV subsidies at these gasoline super users. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but let's start by just getting a picture in our heads of where EV subsidies are currently going, because right now they're not weighted at all for anything. They're just uh, any EV anywhere. So where do they end up going? Like, what's the map look like for where EV subsidies are concentrated now? Yeah. So what we're finding is that generally EV subsidies are being used by wealthier people who um, unfortunately tend to be on the lower end of gasoline use. So these EVs aren't displacing that much gasoline. Um, And we can tell that because there's really heavy concentrations of EV buyers in the wealthiest zip codes. Um, and those are, you know, pretty much everyone up to a very recently was eligible to get incentives for that. Um, you know, and unfortunately, there's a really big mismatch between the current recipients of these EV subsidies and super users. I guess it makes some intuitive sense that if you're the type of person who will be an early EV adopter, you're probably already the type of person maybe to not drive so much. Again, that's I guess we're speculating somewhat about that, but. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I think in the early days before uh, there was so much public EV charging and there were still a lot of myths prevailing about EVs, it really took kind of a 
you know, really early adopters to have the courage to go for these cars. Um, and of course, they tended to be wealthier people who could just afford to add a third car in the driveway or something, but mm. didn't have to rely on it. Right. Uh, but now they're becoming, you know, quite mainstream to where anyone can can use an EV, and then we're starting to see that in areas. Yeah, and a lot and a lot of EVs were appealing to raging environmentalists that used to drive a Prius and now want to do <laughs> even better. But the, you know, those people again were not using lots and lots of gasoline because Priuses are quite efficient. This is hilarious. This is me at this exact moment. I'm about to trade my my old Prius in for a Bolt and uh, get a bunch of subsidies that I probably shouldn't be getting. So the main point there is that the sort of map of where EVs are now, EV subsidies and EVs are now, is almost the inverse of the, of the gasoline super user map. And, and also in terms of income distribution, almost the inverse of gasoline super user uh, distribution. So your basic proposal is that we should be scaling those EV subsidies toward gasoline super users are just in general, you should get more EV subsidy, the more gasoline you typically burn. So let's just start by talking about how that would work. <laughs> what, are, what are the mechanics? Like if I'm, uh, you know, say I go to a dealer, a GM dealer, I want to buy a, a bolt or whatever, and I'm going to get a scaled subsidy. How do, wh- who, calculates how much I've driven and, and what my typical gasoline consumption is. And then, you know, who does the scaling and who gives me the subsidy? Like, and how does kind of the math work? Like walk me through the kind of the practical bits of it. Sure. You know, it's actually pretty easy. So, you know, at the time you register your vehicle, your gas, when you got your gas powered vehicle, um, there's an odometer reading that is on that, that certificate of title. Mm. And that can easily be obtained through services like Carfax, um, or you can just go look at your own title. So anyway, you, let's imagine you going to the dealer, you take your certificate of title, and you've got your car. So they look at your current odometer reading, and they subtract the starting odometer reading from that current one, and they can get the total miles that you've traveled in the lifetime of, of your ownership of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, they can divide by how many years you've had the vehicle, and your miles per gallon rating of that particular vehicle, which is also very easily available. And that will give you your average annual gallons of gasoline burned over the time you've had the vehicle. Um, And then they can assign whatever the government decides is the correct dollar value per average annual gallon. Let's just for math simplicity say it's $10 a gallon. Um, And then if you're a super user, that means you're on average burning about a thousand uh, gallons a year or more. And so if it was $10 a gallon, you would get $10,000 to trade in that car for an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. In- inversely, me, who drives very little, <laughs> would get very little off the off the uh, price of the new vehicle. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you'd still get something unless, I mean, maybe the government would set up this incentive program so that below a certain number of gallons, you get nothing. I don't know. But um, if they wanted to incentivize everyone, you would get something, but it'd be a lot less than you know, people who are burning tons and tons of gasoline. And then we think for equity's sake, it would really, it would be very helpful to give a boosted amount per average gallon to lower income drivers. Um, They're having to spend a ridiculous percent of their household income on gasoline, especially if they're super users. And so they should actually get more to make the switch. Right. So the idea here is if you are a low income gasoline super user, you could kind of the point I'm circling around is that EVs are still, although this probably won't be true for 
much longer still, you know, in terms of sticker price, more expensive or certainly, you, you know, if you're a low income gasoline super user, you may have a beater. You may only be able to afford a new beater. Uh, so they would have to be pretty steep, wouldn't they, to get at some of these people on the lower end of the income scale? Yeah, well, it really depends on how much gasoline they're using. With gasoline at $6 a gallon, as it is in much of California and elsewhere, it actually makes sense for pretty much any super user to switch to EV. And they can do it, in, you know, they, there may be some gap, but an EV subsidy can cover a great deal of that. Yeah. So it really, it really can make sense. Yeah, if you think about the monthly amount they're having to save out to pay for their gasoline, let's mm -hmm. say they're a lower income super user, and suddenly they're going to get a pretty deep discount on an EV. Uh, maybe they're still going to have to make a monthly payment, but they're now not paying that much for their fuel, right? The electricity is going to be anywhere from a fifth to a half of the cost of gasoline. So suddenly they've got money back in their pocket that they could use to make those monthly payments. Yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a classic story, right? It's stock versus flow. Like to come up with the sticker price of an EV, you have to gather a bunch of money up front, whereas gasoline is just sort of bleeding you a little bit <laughs> at a time so you can, so you can keep up. It's always that upfront cost. That's the, that's the trick, right? So one thing that springs to mind in turn, you know, in addition to the income issue, like, you know, thinking about like how, uh, I, I wonder if you guys have thought about extending EV subsidies to used EVs, because that would be one way at least to like bring the range of eligible vehicles down much cheaper. Is that something that's come up? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, the point is, is to get super users driving electric vehicles. So if that's a used vehicle or a new vehicle, great. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And the point is to displace gasoline. You know, we've got this goal out there to cut emissions from all sources in half by 2030. And so for the light duty vehicle sector, the whole point is just to displace gasoline as fast as we can. So we don't really care what, <laughs> what the, the driver switches into as long as it's they're cutting their gasoline use, mm -hmm. um, hopefully by a big margin. What about the issue? I think a lot of, you know, when a lot of people sort of envision a rural gasoline super user, say, driving their big truck around to jobs all over their rural counties or whatever, a lot of people, I think, will wonder, well, is there an EV that can cover those needs? Are these, aren't the people who drive the longest distances the ones that are most likely to run into range issues or range anxiety or difficulty finding an EV that has the capacity or the range to cover their needs. Do you think that's a real problem still? Um, no. And here's why. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many super users of all different stripes that at least for starters, we could start getting super users into EVs who are kind of the perfect candidates for right this second. Um, and then EV models like electric pickup trucks, you know, they're coming, they're just a few years away. But for now, we could just start with even people who are driving sedans who could switch to something like a Chevy Bolt. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's plenty of super users who are probably doing, you know, the, the average super user mileage is about 30,000 miles a year. Um, so somebody driving, you know, 100, 120 miles a day could easily qualify as a super user. And most electric vehicles today have more than 200 miles of range, even I'd say around 250 miles of range. So if you're the type of super user who drives 120 miles a day and you come home every night and could charge your car overnight, you're already a fantastic candidate to make the switch and it's not going to be a big deal. 
Yeah, one advantage is that rural drivers have is usually they can plug in at home, and so that makes it super easy for them to charge. Right. You have done a little bit of math and figured out that if we scaled EV subsidies this way, we could basically reduce much more gasoline with way fewer EVs. Sort of, how does that math work out, and what's the difference? How big is that difference? Yeah, it's it's pretty big. So if we were able to get the 98 million biggest users of gasoline into EVs, that would enable us to cut our carbon emissions by 50%. It actually would, that would lead to about a 65% decrease in gasoline. And, and you know, when you factor in the grid, about 50% uh, emissions reduction. But if you took the least um, users, the 233 million least users in the country, then it, it, that's how many EVs it would take, 233 million. So basically it's almost two and a half times as many EVs would be required if we help the lower users first as opposed to the bigger users. Right, so we can target the highest users and get by with a relatively fewer number of cars. One of the reasons I ask about that is because I wonder how, you know, I guess this is this is kind of a question for any EV subsidies, but insofar as we're thinking about this being fast, a fast way to reduce gasoline use. Um, how big an issue are supply problems right now, or do you think that they'll catch up by the time demand would ramp up from this kind of thing? Um, so, you know, you're right that right now there is kind of a supply chain issue and a struggle to meet the demand. I do think auto manufacturers, I mean, I've been reading about it, are making huge plans to ramp up. They want to be able to meet this demand for EVs. But what it highlights is that right now, while we have demand exceeding the supply for EVs, it makes it even more critical that we get those precious EVs, each of which has the potential to displace enormous amounts of gasoline into the hands of the people who were burning that gasoline. Yeah. I mean, another way of saying is how dumb is it for the government to give a bunch of money to people who aren't using their EV very much when those people would obviously buy it anyway, because there's such strong demand for it. You know, the kind of market making function of EV subsidies, which, you know, made a lot of sense 10 years ago, right now makes zero sense. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, because this was one of my actually my first reactions when I first heard about this idea is there's an argument that, you know, there's gasoline reduction policy and then there's EV policy and they're not necessarily the same thing. You could just say that EV policy is sort of like industrial policy. The point is to create the market. The point is to drive scale in a market. And to do that, you want to just get the most EVs out the door that you can, as opposed to, you know, fewer, like you just want to mass produce the EVs. So what you're saying, I, I, I think right there, Matthew, is that we did that part already. Is that is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and when supplies are so tight, it, you, you can't get any more EVs built because it's a, there's a supply constraint. So incentivizing doesn't achieve anything. <laughs> that's true. That's true. As long as demand's out ahead of. Is there any way to figure out what d- the demand level for EVs is among super users? Like, is, is that is that something we could figure out? Like are, how open they are to them or how receptive they are to them? That's exactly what we want to look into. We actually have um, planned to do some focus grouping uh, and surveys and really understand on a very granular level what is what are the not only the driving habits and who would be ideal super users to switch to EVs, but what are their perceptions about EVs and what are their attitudes? It's so interesting. When, when I first read super user, I will admit that my mind, and this is you know probably just a bunch of biases, but my mind immediately goes rural 
red voter truck driver doesn't want an EV. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where my mind goes. That's probably wrong, though. I mean, as you say, it's distributed widely. Yeah. And Ford is taking a big bet that you're wrong um, with the electric F-150. I mean, the plan is to make this thing so cool yeah. that you don't care if you're red or blue. You just, right. as a truck driver, you've got to get your hands on one of these. Yeah. Speaking of demand, uh, outrunning supply, I think they're... Yes, they had to cap their wait list. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, you have all these uh, government vehicles, like lots and lots of government fleets would love to get out their vehicles for, for F-150s. And there's just so much demand coming from so many different places. And so, you know, that's the thing is that I think in U.S. this year or last year, we sold about 600,000 EVs, but there's, you know, 25 million super users. So, you know, we don't need all of them to change right away if we got just... 10% of super users to switch, that would be you know, two and a half million vehicles. That's a, way more than we're producing and likely to produce for the next few years. So let's return a little bit to the data question. You say you're getting more, better data out of California. And I, I'm curious um, what that data looks like and what sort of research you want to get into next. Like what's, where, where are you going to look next for, for information about these people? Yeah. So in California, we have uh, gotten a real treasure trove. So uh, we got from the Department of Motor Vehicles millions of records of vehicle ownership. So we'd get the odometer readings, the EPA rating for the vehicle, but also the zip code mm. uh, where the vehicle's registered. So we have been able to create an extremely richly detailed heat map for California by zip code of where the highest concentrations of super users are. And because the DMV gave us also the kind of make, year, and model of the vehicle, we're able to track per zip code what the most popular super user models are. Mm. This is just enormously helpful. And uh, we're getting more data from um, smog checks. We're getting odometer readings from smog checks that will literally, it's 60 million <laughs> records. Um, so we'll be able to create even a more detailed heat map. And, and that's really what we want to do is get very granular in understanding super users. This is something that's just never been done before. Um, so we're very excited to understand better kind of the demographics of, of, each, of each zip code. And we'll, with this data, be able to go in and really focus on certain zip codes for things like focus groups and, and surveys and deeply come to understand at the zip code level, what, what are these folks driving habits and patterns and what is it gonna take to get them to make the switch? Right. Has anything jumped out of that uh, information yet? Like, uh, is there a particular California county where you're like, oh, there's like the civic drivers <laughs> there? Like, what, yes. What have we learned from California so far? Yes. So, rural drivers, as you know, not a huge shock to anyone, are big pickup truck areas. <laughs> That's where the super users are. And then you look kind of like 80 to maybe 120 miles out from the big metropolitan areas, and you see some more kind of sedans. Like these are obviously, well, I think obviously people driving into big metro areas for their jobs every day. Right. Actually, what shocked me the most, David, was how much money people are spending on gasoline. It is wild. Yeah. And so for a lot of areas, people are spending five, $600 a month on gasoline. And these people, and these are people from, let's say, very, you know, low to moderate income counties they're spending, you know, 30, 40% of their after-tax income on gasoline. So it's just a huge burden on people. Yeah, you kind of got to wonder why, like what it would take to push some of those people into EVs <laughs> already. Like, Yeah, for some of them are just hemorrhaging money on, on fuel. And I think the answer might be not much. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if we can just get them past that, get them into a, a, a loan or like you said, even a used EV that's cheaper up front, their lives are just going to be materially better right away. Yeah. And that really opens a lot of political doors, really understanding how these rural communities are affected by the expenditures. So, you know, again, you can you can do a real solid for these people by getting them an EV and, and really, really help them. And so this whole thing about the EV being this elitist coastal thing, you know, maybe you can you can switch you can switch the narrative. Plus, you know, having that level of expenditure come out of a community is a huge basically hole in their arm, you know, they're just leaking money out to other areas. And if they can keep that in on their own main streets, you know, it would be very helpful for the local businesses. It's like, it would be like a big tax break for everyone. Yeah. A targeted tax break. This seems like an intriguing pitch to policymakers. I guess I'm I'm trying to work through the implications if you put it in front of someone. I mean, like you say, Matthew, you can say this is a, it's outreach to Maybe a lot of voters that are swingy or even red, you know, it's good gasoline policy. And some might argue that it makes more sense than sending checks to people based on how many cars they have, which is what California is doing now. Uh, so is anyone going for this? How, how's the reception been from, uh, from the policymaking world or from politicians? You know, it's been really positive. Uh, We already have been speaking at the federal level with some U.S. senators who are interested in this idea as something that could really have bipartisan appeal. Mm. You know, it meets both climate urgency and it gets more EV incentive money into the hands of lower income and rural super users. You know, up to now, those people really haven't seen any of that money. And then at the state level um, in California, Assemblymember Phil Ting has already introduced a bill AB 2816, that would change up uh, EV incentive policy, would actually tie it to gasoline consumption. And then also in Washington state, uh, the legislature just appropriated $450,000 for a further study of gasoline super users. Mm. Um, And, you know, they actually, they have a pretty robust um, EV incentive package, but they decided not to appropriate any more funds for their kind of one size fits all incentives until um, they could figure out how to make them better targeted. One more thing, David. I mean, this is really hitting the oil industry where it hurts. We're trying to take away their biggest customers. You know, that they're the <laughs> and so, you know, that's positive. Is and take that money that's going to them and basically turn it into a cash flow that can use to make payments on electric vehicles. And so it it really kind of turns that redirects that spigot of money that's gushing towards the, the oil industry and, and and sends it over to EVs. So we could actually see something like this in practice. This is kind of a technical question, but California, its fuel economy standards are based on this waiver it has that allows it to develop its own fuel economy standards and not uh, just adopt the federal fuel economy standards. And I wonder now that I think about it, how much flexibility does that waiver offer? Do you know if California legally can structure its incentives in a fundamentally different way than federal incentives and still sort of fit within that program? I mean, even today, states have wide latitude to structure their EV incentives however they want. So I Mm. don't think it would be a problem. Well, this would be an interesting uh, sort of Hail Mary as the uh, midterms approach. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing about the carbon tax, that this is actually kind of like the carbon tax in that you're, you're allocating resources on the basis of... Uh, carbon savings and or or cost of carbon, but the thing is, is that people like spending way more than they like, <laughs> <laughs> and they like getting I've stuff. Noticed, I've noticed that. 
And so this does really kind of open a way for sort of a carbon priced model, but to be embraced by the masses. Yeah. Right. It's like an inverse, an inverse gas tax, a reverse gas tax. Yeah. You're paying people not to use gasoline. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, this is so uh, uh, clever and interesting, y'all. And I hope uh, maybe we can uh, return to it in a couple of years when we know more about these folks. I'm so interested to hear a, a more detailed demographic breakdown. I wonder if there's insights buried in there that, that are yet to be uncovered. No doubt. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on and thanks for your report and your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.